overwhelmed it. But with these large data sets, we have the ability to sort of supercharge that process at least a little bit, where we're no longer doing deductive tests. So that's the heart of it. So the heart of what we're calling the inductive approach, the inductive scientific method, is just like with deduction, starting with the hypothesis you'd like to test. But instead of going and looking just for that hypothesis, letting an algorithm determine what is the best predictor and then seeing. Now, there's a few things to note about induction. The first thing to note in this meeting, the first thing to note is induction is only as powerful as your data set is rich. If you have very few other variables besides your theory, that's... Now, why is that important? That's important because this, I think, is the reason this type of approach was never really practical until the last 10 years, because we collected data. And data is expensive to collect. What do you go out and collect? The stuff that you think matters. That, that's why deduction is so powerful. But once you're collecting all sorts of shit, you can edit that out, right? But once you're going to collect all that out, then you, you will have the ability to look at all these other variables and see what matters, much like in word sense ambiguation. We're no longer defining rules. We're just throwing everything in. Okay. Second, I want you to observe that this is not, absolutely not, about causality. The original researcher's mistake wasn't that she misunderstood admitted variable bias. She randomly assigned roommates. It's about the interpretation of causal relationships we discover. It's about, and it can also be about causality, but the core issue is not, I'm telling you about admitted variable bias. I'm trying to tell you about the testing of hypotheses. So that's the approach, and that's what I think has some room to combine this movement in big data with what we tend to do. So let me tell you a practical application of this. We went, um, we decided to try and test this with one of the old facts in uh, behavioral finance. So behavioral finance is the application of uh, the work Danny and others have done to financial markets. And it's been probably one of, I, I would say that historically behavioral finance has been the, one of the big reasons why behavioral economics really took off. Because in a way, it's like if you're thinking of this like attacking some foreign country, this is not the, quite the capital of economics, but once you take that territory, then it becomes easy to take everything else because people are like, there's no way these psychological biases could matter in markets. And, well, they do. And so then you're like, oh, we can take the rest of the ground. Um, what, one of the early facts in this area was something called the disposition effect, uh, very close to Danny's heart. <coughs> the disposition effect states that because people are afraid or, or dislike realizing losses, what we should see is that when somebody holds a stock that they bought at $10, they're much likely to sell if that stock is at $9 than if that stock is at 11 because you just don't want to realize that loss. And it's quite intuitive, and it's kind of an interesting application of loss aversion combined with one other assumption. And in fact, one of the beautiful papers um, in this literature was Terry O'Dean went and got a very large data set of traders, about 100,000 traders from brokerage house, and what he showed was, using good deductive science, I took this large data, I looked at uh, stocks, uh, people who were in the gain domain, people who were in the loss domain, and the proportion of gains realized to losses realized was huge. Gains were realized at about 60% higher rate than losses. Very good deductive science. So we thought, well, let's go and just apply inductive science, because, hey, this is a large data set with lots of features. And when you go and apply sort of machine learning techniques and you say, okay, let's let the algorithm go through this huge set of variables and pick out variables individually that it thinks are important. This is no longer a prediction. This is just if I had to look one by one. In fact, there's good support 
for the disposition effect. This algorithm is rediscovering loss aversion because it finds this gain variable and says, if I had to use one, this is one of the ones that I would use. It discovers a few others, but it's as if, I'm going to put you out of work soon, Danny. It discovers <laughs> loss aversion, which is kind of interesting. But then if you say to the algorithm, go ahead and use all the variables you could to come up with the best predictor, it doesn't care about the disposition effect. Absolutely uninterested in that effect. The disposition effect, much like roommate assignment, appears to have been merely a proxy for some deeper avenue of behavior that isn't, really has nothing to do with disposition. Disposition has zero, like zero, approximately zero predictive value in when you add it. So if you said, here's an algorithm, I hide from it the, the disposition effect variable, or even the gain domain. I even hide from it anything to do with the purchase price. So it can't possibly know anything about the, the disposition effect. And then here's another algorithm to which I give privilege advantage of my theory, of my, which is purchase price matters. Turns out the two algorithms do exactly as well. There is no benefit in knowing the purchase price. What we thought was the disposition effect appears to be a proxy for something else. Now, it's a little unsatisfying, but lots of rejections are unsatisfying. One thing that's interesting about the induction test is that it's not, unlike deduction, where when we get a, oh my, you know, this doesn't work, we just are told it doesn't work. Induction actually gives us a little bit more. It gives us at least some sense of north, because it tells us these are the variables I used to kill the variable you care about. In this particular case, what killed this position? Well, two things appear to kill this position. The algorithm discovers this variable, which we, we could call quartile. What is quartile? Quartile is the price that you have right now, the stock that you're seeing, where does it fall in the distribution of prices over the last 180 days, or that you've seen, for example? If it's in the top quartile, people are much, much more likely to sell than if it's anywhere else. Now, you can see how that's somewhat correlated with whether you're in the gain domain, but it has nothing to do with your purchase price. It's just where are you sitting. The other thing that surprisingly seems to matter is if you just look, the last pattern of three prices you saw make a big difference. So up, 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 people are very likely to sell. Interestingly, down, 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 people are very likely to sell. So the pattern that really matters if you put it all together is you're in the top quartile and the price goes up, 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 or you're in the top quartile and the price goes down, down, down. That's where all a disproportionate amount of sales happen. Of course, because gain is correlated with being in that space weekly, gain matters, but if you have that variable, which the algorithm discovers, it kills, and it's not just gain no longer matters, it's this stuff is much, much more predictive. So just to close it out, that's sort of the application. And I think the things that we're thinking about now are, in some sense, this I think, hopefully is a way to combine what I think is the principled elements of science, hypothesis, test, with the sort of almost the data mining, um, inductive, exploratory, just, you know, stuff comes up that is hard to interpret aspect of big data that is now allowed in the data sets we have. So that's it. Thank you. Mm. data, maybe not big data in the way that we 
speak of it for a while. So this approach, it is weird that we talk about the scientific method as first formulating a theory and, and then generating a hypothesis and then testing it out, because that so often is not how it happens um, in real life. Uh, so you even go back to uh, looking at Tycho Brahe's data, right? So it's just he was a big data guy. All he did was collect data. Um, but you know, then Kepler comes along and, and finds them and says, hey, there are some rules to this. Um, but it takes Newton to come and actually offer an explanation. And this is what I want to ask you about. Explanation is the heart of the scientific method. And I fear that big data yields better predictions about the future. But we lose sight of getting to the more basic general principles that might actually yield predictions in completely different domains. I, I could not agree more with you. So I, <clears throat> I think maybe I wasn't clear enough. I, I absolutely am in no way proposing that we are um, that we use big data to induct up hypotheses and so on and so on. I was still maintaining, I think, the good features of science where wherever your hypothesis came from, that's the starting point. And the goal is very much to use big data to test that hypothesis. Is that, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. And, and, and so and to I, me, it's I wasn't saying that you were ignoring that feature. I, what I really wanted to hear your thoughts on is whether the focus on the success of predictions will possibly make us lose sight of the work that we have to do uh, to try to, to, to yield more general explanations, that, that, that we might abandon the quest for the more basic because the, the prediction is so powerful that we just keep collecting more and more data and saying like, well, I don't care. This is the number, this captures the most variance. So that's what matters. Yeah. And I feel like we, we, lose, we lose some deeper understanding um, when, when we're so focused on that. So more it was just like, do you, do you think that this is actually a danger? Or do you think that this is not at all, that we will keep the... I, I actually, I, I, it's a great question. I, I don't think it, it's a danger because, and here's why. I think right now the conversation is there, but having worked a lot with these sort of these type of techniques now, very quickly, just pragmatically, you run across it. That is to say, there are domains where it's really clear you can just put in your prediction method and just plow forward. But in lots of domains, you very quickly have to get into prediction for exactly the reason that you said, which is we're trying to start with big data, but we're trying to move to somewhere where we don't have as much data. And that's happened so often, but it's like, I think it's just because this is like a new toy that people are sort of, appeal. it's appealing in this way, but just pragmatic, I don't even think it's gonna require anyone to say this. Pragmatically, you just start using it and you're like, oh wait, I can't. And then all of a sudden it breaks. And that's been my experience. I had a, a narrower reflection. Um, <coughs> Not on your broader point, although I have some thoughts on that too. Uh, on the last issue of um, prediction about when traders might trade, it reminds me a little bit about the challenge physicians face with prognostication. So it used to be felt in a way you're talking about you know position, velocity, and acceleration of a particle. So when you're trying to predict whether a patient will live or die, initially people put a lot of um, credence in what was the patient's health status right now. So a patient that if on a 10-point scale was an 8, would be predicted to live longer, have more prospects for survival than a patient whose position was now 4. But of course, it matters a lot. If I told you the patient who's 4 was yesterday a 10, the patient who's, uh, or vice versa, the patient who's 4 
was yesterday a 3 and the patient who said 8 was yesterday a 10, now you might make a different prediction about what's likely to happen. And then, of course, you could get the third moment as well, not just the, you know, so you could go down downstream. So um, so it's, it's, it's a little, um, there's an analogy from what you're describing. And eventually, you could even imagine that the velocity is much more important than the position, dispense with the position altogether. The other thing that uh, reminded me of what you were describing in that example is um, the sort of uh, asymmetric loss aversion that physicians have when they make prognoses. So, um, so if, if, if you imagine that actually um, a patient's survival, like, like the classic, you know, uh, real estate, how do you price a piece of real estate, right? The classic uh, Zellner, I think, right? On, uh, so the, the, the real estate agent has to um, pick a price to, to sell a, a house. And you can't um, publish on the front of the house uh, a density function for what price you would sell it at. You have to pick a single <laughs> price. And if you pick too high a price, then maybe you run the risk that the house doesn't sell. If you pick too low a price, well, then you run the risk that you left money on the table. So you calibrate and you pick a point, and you have to balance these two losses, you know, not selling versus leaving money on the table. The physician uh, faces a similar problem, which is um, I have to make a prediction to you of how long you're going to live. You're coming to me for treatment. If I overpredict, uh, then, um, then, and you die early, then I lose face and I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Uh, and if I underpredict uh, about how long you're going to live, you live great. Well, then I maybe look fantastic, or you know, make treatment decisions otherwise. Um, it turns out that they're very, very. One of the reasons physicians, um, uh, one of the deep reasons that physicians consistently overestimate survival and are miscalibrated, is they feel very differently about selling at a dollar loss than they do about selling at a dollar gain. So a one-month overestimate of survival means something very different to them in terms of their loss than a one-month underestimate. So just two analogies to what you're discussing. What? How, uh, how do these ideas manifest manifest in your work in government? So, <clears throat> I and explain what you do. Uh, yeah. So I've been doing. I've done various things, and I've done work uh, at the with the CFPB and work uh, at Treasury. I think this is quite distinct in that, and I think this touches back on the big data, et cetera, question. This really is me trying to struggle with the following fundamental issue, which is, can we, and, and maybe this is not what's going to be the equilibrium in the future, but if we maintain the rigid rule that science is hypothesis test, I'm trying to ask, is there something different about science when data gets very large? And to me, that's interesting because I had always just presumed until I started down this path that when data gets very large, the only thing that changes about science is that we have more power. Great, we have. It's like almost like the focus gets sharper, and that's all. We continue what we're doing, but we're, you know, because it's sharper focus, maybe we can look for smaller effects. But in fact, this stuff has convinced me that it's possible that the qualitative nature of science itself changes. And I know that I'm talking about it in the realm of social science because we understand that, but. I suspect the same ideas can be used in other areas, though we're not sure, but in other areas where um, we also have large data sets and we're testing scientific hypotheses. But I'm trying to put my finger on what I feel is missing and uh, uh, from this new approach. Uh, and I haven't got it very well figured out, but it reminds me a bit of uh, sort of credit assignment problems in in AI and in debugging, and also in uh, in connectionism, where where 
you've got a connection to this model, train it up, it works. Now the question is why? How? And there are some techniques which can tease out mm. pretty well uh, what's doing the work. Uh, I think Sanofsky and Hinton have, have some, for instance. But I think we need something more here. I, I guess what worries me uh, is that uh, we'll come to settle for uh, big data prediction and just abandon the search for understanding and say, well, come on, that's, a, that's an old-fashioned, that's a 19th century idea, a 20th century uh, ideal. Uh, who needs formulae? Who needs understanding when we just push the button and the algorithm gives us the prediction? That is, to me, a uh, depressing prospect. So that's related to your question as well. Yeah. So let me, let me tackle, just in a little bit more why I don't think we'll settle there, um, is that and uh, several people uh, have written about this. Donahoe at Stanford has done the, really written some very good things about this. There's sort of a misnomer in the word big and big data. And uh, this may be familiar to all of you, but at least let me just talk it through. We could break the word <coughs> big into two parts, long data and wide data. What do I mean by that? Long data is the number of data points you have. So if you picture the data set as sort of like a matrix or written on a piece of paper, length is the length of that data set. The width is the number of features that you have. Now, these two kinds of big work in exactly the opposite direction. That is, long is really, really good. Wide, it's not that it's bad, but it poses a lot of problems. And why does wide pose a lot of problems? Picture the prediction function work as a search process. The search process is find the combinations of features that work well to predict why. Now you can see just a little bit of back of the envelope, the combinatorics are, of it are such that as the data gets even a little bit wider, this thing is growing just exponentially. I mean, just crazy exponentially. So as a result, when data gets wider and wider and wider, the problem gets harder and harder and harder, and algorithms do worse and worse and worse. As the data gets longer and longer, algorithms do better and better. And so why I'm, why I'm saying this is because ultimately, as data gets bigger, it's not like it's re reducing the need for, let's call the word curation. What is curation? Curation is the human element of going in and saying, sure, we got lots of these variables, but let's pick these few that matter. Now there, and I think this is a part that's missing. What we're talking about is something interesting is happening in the curation process. Deduction is one end of curation which is I picked the one feature I thought mattered and I'm putting that in. With big data, we can put in more than the one feature we thought mattered, but we can't, in many cases, throw it all into the mix. Now, in a few cases we can, the data set is sufficiently thin that you can throw it all in, but in most cases you are still left with actually a pretty massive curation problem, and in most machine learning applications, mm -hmm. prediction applications, that's all swept under the rug. But the truth is, some domain expert had to curate this thing. Somebody had to decide because they're just way too much. And so there is some interesting and important interaction there, which is also why I think that it's not, I'm not even just saying, notice my comment is, an, is a statement about the inherent mathematics of the problem. This is not something where more computing power is going to solve this. It's not something where more data is going to solve this. 
because this is a double exponential situation where when things get sufficiently wide, we're talking about more data than there are atoms in the universe. This is not, we're not even close to that. So this sort of width problem in blowing things up actually is, I think, at the heart of why fundamentally we have to have explanation. So, and I'm not saying we have an answer to that, but I think that, that that's why there is the need for having a hypothesis testing and then continue to iterate that. Does that kind of get No, that's, that, that's very good. Um, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like search in chess, too. You know, if you had, had 7,500 first move possibilities. <laughs> and and it's actually worth, that's actually a great example. It's actually worth noting the difference between search in chess and this example. Yeah. In search in chess, my input is not data. It's just computational power to walk down the tree because the world is yeah. given to me. Yeah. So the only constraint I have is steps down this tree. In this machine learning world, the length is the limit. I can't just say, get me more data. Well, there are only six billion people in the world. I've given you everybody. There's, I can't, can't give you any more. And so that sort of, the, the length yeah. constraint is sort of a very real constraint on the width that we can search through, which is, I think, why I'm quite optimistic that we're not fundamentally just going to somehow miraculously lose the need for explanation. Does that, does that help Yeah, you? well, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, let me start the other way. Let's stipulate for a moment that oscillation is real, I mean, you know, and that people really hate to realize a loss. Now, that would predict some disposition effect. It might not predict the disposition effect. That is, there is a difference. Uh, what, what we have, you know, and, and I think that's extremely interesting, it might not be the best predictor, but it might still be true. So when you say kill the variable, you might have killed something that in fact is valid and interesting and important. It is just not the best predictor of, you know, uh, what, when people sell That's or don't. And we know that, is, that that can happen. That's and I'm wondering about that, because then you might actually be losing something through big data. Uh, because there is a consistent story. There is a broad story about loss of women. And, and you know, I'm a, I'm a, it seems trivial that when somebody has a choice between rewarding themselves by selling something that has gained and punishing themselves by, by selling at a loss, uh, they're more likely to reward themselves. Uh, if that isn't true, if big data can kill that hypothesis, then we're in real trouble. So here is a hypothesis that somehow must be true. And what you have shown is that it's not the best predictor of, of uh, people's choices of... Uh, yeah. and, and because it is not the best predictor, it's not an independent predictor. You have come up, you know, with a conclusion, which is a strong conclusion, we've killed that variable. I, I'm not sure you have killed it. I'm not sure you should kill it. You know, that's, that's the question I'm raising. I think there is, let me, I think there are two ways in which we could be wrong in saying we've killed the variable. One is, let's, we focus narrowly on stock sales. And we still, that's the only thing in the world, and we're trying to figure out did we say something meaningful about the disposition effect there? The second way is, look, we don't just care about stock sales, and this harkens back to what we've been saying. We care about a variety of things. 
And even if this variable is not the most important predictive variable here, it's possible that it's the third most important predictive variable, but across many, many, many domains. And so as a result, it's a foolish thing. So there, I think these are two separate elements of it. And let me take them in part. Um, the second one I think is the easiest to sort of talk about, which is that I think what I find valuable in the inductive test at some level is it's worth just comparing it to the deductive test. In, in, in that sense, Induction, I think, will lead to many more of these instances where variables look unimportant or far less important in this context. But I think that's something social science has to sort of come up with, which is that our theories are not meant to or can never be so good that in every context they do very, very well. So we have to be amassing evidence across a variety of contexts. And so I would completely agree. If you said to me, we are going to go and get data on housing, do I believe that this fact that disposition is less important here or unimportant here given the other variables, does that mean disposition wouldn't be important here? I don't know. And so I think of this as having supercharged one part of the process, but by no means have in any way supercharged the other part, which is important for social science, which is to look context by context and start to understand. And I totally would believe a world where we found it disposition was third most important or second or was important if we didn't know, but because the quantile is not something you can look at in other places, etc. So I'm agreeing, though in this case I will say that I, it gave me a moment pause because when we look at the variable that matters, in this case the quantile and the price distribution, price dynamics, that made me feel like actually now that I go to the housing world, I would also be curious about those variables. So that gives me guidance, but kill is too strong a word for the second one. I, I completely agree with that. Um, it's more saying we've learned a signal that this thing wasn't independent. Yeah, then I have a, a small technical question. I assume that you did it the way I would have done it. But the, the disposition effect, as I understand it, is that you, you take an individual who has a choice, that is, he has a portfolio. There are some winners and some losers in the portfolio. And the question is, which is he more likely to sell? So is that the way it was set up? or So... Or because in general, that is, if you don't set it up as a sales problem, if you just predict what as a choice problem between selling a loser and selling a winner, if you just predict selling, you could get something entirely yeah, yeah, different. No, no, that's right. would be completely irrelevant. That's exactly right. No, no, it's very much set up as you're given this string, here's a person, and you're given this string of everything that's happened to them as well as their purchase price and so therefore you can say okay for this person in this stock here's everything you know about them and now you'd like to make a prediction about is that person going to be selling or losing and, and just so you get a sense that person that type of string there are many such strings and so there will be ones where that person will be in the lost domain on another stock that person and so that's the signal that I think um, the Odin paper correctly got at because it collapsed all those strings down and said all the times that you're in gain versus all times in loss. And then that's what, but I don't know if that's what you mean no, or. I mean, my question was whether you restricted your analysis and your prediction to cases in which the portfolio included a winner and a loser. Because if you didn't, then, then your results are yet a completely different interpretation. The disposition effect is about a choice. Right. And you, the story you were telling us is about a prediction, 
and you could have a portfolio that is all winners or all losers. And if you allow those portfolios inside your analysis, you could get your result, and that would be the bear. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So but more particularly, I mean, it, does the does the outcome of other stocks held by the same trader affect the likelihood of? selling or buying the index stock, I think, right? Across stocks, not yes. across individuals. Yep, so are you comparing go. individuals who are at a gain, they're more likely to sell than individual versus within the individual? That's right. right. That makes total sense. Um, we've done a, a little bit of stuff, but maybe not as much as you'd like, but we've done a little bit of stuff on the entire portfolio. Is the entire portfolio in a gain? Where is the stock relative to the other stocks in the gain? And those never get off the ground, which I take as a sort of a mental accounting thing that each thing is being individually accounted for. Um, but we haven't done, and we can do this, it's a great idea, is just literally take, compare this person and say, here are two stocks that the person themselves holds at this time, which one is more likely to be sold? That's a thought experiment we can easily do. I mean, that's interesting because of something it tells you about big data and the analysis. That is, that when you constructed it, the deductive yeah. way, when you construct a story about the disposition effect, you really very clearly have a choice in mind. But and to be fair, the Odin experiment wasn't the one you had either. No. No, no. So that was I the mean, deduction. When we did deduction with Odin, we also did just take all winners and compare to all losers. So in some sense, I, I take your comment, but I don't think that's about, I think that's almost a slippage, a mental slippage we all have had around what is the prediction. And maybe this is nice because it's really forcing us to sharpen exactly yeah. what the prediction is. That's exactly right. Hello. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>